Our sermon is entitled, Being and Serving in the Body of Christ, from Romans 12, 3 through 8. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Romans chapter 12 on page 891. So turn there, flip open uh, in your, your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. Uh, we've been going through Romans for a while, and uh, off and on, we, we started back into Romans last week with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Uh, where we saw that Paul is instructing believers to live in view of God's mercy, to live in total devotion to God, to present the entirety of who we are to God as a sacrifice of worship, to not be like the world, but rather to be uh, transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit to live a new life that glorifies God. Right? We saw those two verses that kind of set the stage for, laid the foundation for, <clears throat> the verses and the chapters that are going to, to follow. We saw that uh, Romans chapters 1 through 11 kind of all uh, function as something of a, a coherent group uh, talking about doctrine, right? We see a lot of indicative statements in Romans 1 through 11 <clears throat> about who God is and who we are and how we can be saved and reconciled to God and how the grace of God changes us and affects us, right? A lot of indicative statements that tell us things that are true. That characterizes Romans 1 through 11. Romans 12 through 16 uh, is mostly application. So not as many indicative statements, but rather a lot of imperative commands. Live like this, do this, don't do that. And what we're going to see uh, this morning and in several Sundays uh, to, to in the, the weeks to come, is that Paul kind of, uh, it's almost like he's working in, con, in concentric circles, but he's dealing with different relationships that Christians are going to have and find themselves in, in their life, in this, this world. So last week, right, um, you know, in view of God's word, present your body uh, to God as a living sacrifice. It's kind of characterizing our relationship with God, kind of the most fundamental most you know, pivotal relationship that we have as a human being, our relationship to God. This week we're going to look at, in verse 3, the Christian and his relationship to his, himself and how he views himself, how he understands himself, how he you know, um, yeah, uh, experiences himself. And then verses 4 through 8, uh, the Christian and uh, his relationship with the church, the family of God, and kind of how he lives in and serves in uh, that, that body. So uh, our relationship to God and to ourselves and to the church. In the coming weeks, we'll see how to relate to friends and family and people that we're close with, uh, how to relate to our enemies and people that want to do us harm, uh, how to relate to the civil government and those who have authority over us, how to relate to other Christians who don't agree with us on everything, right? Uh, when, when there are Christians who uh, don't see eye to eye on disputable matters, not on uh, core tenets of the faith, but on disputable matters where we have uh, some Christian liberties to believe and act differently? How do we relate to and interact with the Christians who don't uh, agree with us on all of those things? So lots of different instructions on lots of different uh, relationships that the Christian is going to find himself in in this life. That's Romans 12 through 16. Our text today, Romans 12, 3 through 8 uh, we're going to see, again, Paul is going to address how to view and understand yourself, and he's going to instruct us to uh, be humble, to, to repent of the sin of pride, and to, to cultivate humility in our hearts. And he's going to, you know, one of the um, 
one of the, the reasons why uh, we, we are to, and one of the results of pursuing humility in our life is because, uh, is because that we are a member of the body of Christ, right? So he's going to talk about being a member of the body of Christ, the responsibilities that we have to God and to one another, to love and serve and contribute to the body of Christ and to other Christians in the body of Christ for the glory of God, for the building up of the body, and for our own joy and, and spiritual growth. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, pride and humility, and then living in and serving in the body of Christ. So let's uh, jump right in. We're going to read through Romans 12, 3 through 8, and then pray, and then, and then get to work. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say that everyone among you ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but rather to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though we are many, we are one body in Christ, and we are individually members of one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that was given to us, let us use them. If the gift of prophecy, then use it in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. If the one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in his generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray, and then let's, uh, let's take some time to consider this together. Lord Jesus... We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that we have in our possessions, right? Uh, I mean, in our possession, we carry around a book with your word in it. We, on our phone, on our computer, we can read your word. We can wake up in the morning before work, before school. We can, we can read the, the very words of the sovereign, eternal, creator, God of the universe. That is an incredible uh, privilege that we often overlook and take for granted, and we, we thank you for it. And we pray, Lord, that in these next few minutes that you would speak to us and encourage us and sanctify us through your perfect, inerrant, holy, inspired word. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, verse 3. By the grace given to me, I say to you, ever not are to think of themselves more highly than he ought to think, but with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he starts by saying, what I'm about to say, I'm going to say, by the grace given to me. So, so I, Paul, am not speaking arbitrarily. I'm not just making stuff up. I'm not just saying random things that I happen to think, right? But I am, I am speaking as, um, w- with a degree of authority because I am an, ap- God has given me grace to be <coughs> an apostle. He clarifies that in, in the very first verse of the entire uh, book. He, he identifies himself as an apostle, and therefore I speak with apostolic authority. God has given me grace. He's given me the ability and the calling to, to communicate spiritual theological truth to uh, the Christians in Rome, to the people uh, in the centuries to come that are going to be reading this letter. It's not, it's not from me, it's from, from God. 
this command I'm about to communicate to you, this command I'm about to relay to you, you can disagree with it if you want, you can argue with it if you want, but just know that you're not arguing with me, Paul, you're arguing with God, because what I'm about to say came from God and it was given by his grace to me. And the command is, do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. (coughs) One of Paul's chief concerns with the Christians in Rome is not necessarily something that they do. It's not necessarily some action that they take, although that does matter. Paul cares a lot about what the, what the Christians, what we here in this room do, how we, that the, you know, the words that we say, the actions that we take. But Paul, uh, one of his primary concerns is more with how Christians think and how they see themselves. Because he recognizes that, he recognizes this fundamental aspect of the human heart, which is that what you do and what you say externally is born out of, it kind of comes out of what you think and what you feel, what's in your, in your heart. Jesus articulates this reality when he says, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So what you say and what you do is a reflection of what's in your head, what you think, what's in your heart, what you, what you feel. And so uh, if you're trying to regulate or adjust or modify your behavior, then uh, an important place to start is with the heart, what you think and what you feel and what you believe. So Paul's saying, your behavior matters, your actions matter. We're going to deal with your behavior. We're going to deal with your actions in the coming chapters. But before we get to any of that, we need to address what you think and what you feel and how you view and understand yourself. And whether you realize it or not, Paul is saying we all have this tendency, this natural default mode of our heart to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, to think. To think that we're better than we actually are, smarter than we actually are, more competent than we actually are, more self-sufficient than we actually are, more spiritual than we actually are, kinder, nicer, more holy uh, than we actually are. The human heart is in, kind of inherently predisposed to think all of those things. And so Paul is saying, you have to, as a Christian, push back against that default behavior of your heart to view yourself more highly than you ought to think. Which also comports with something that Jesus said. Right, when he says, he says, uh, why do you take the speck that is in your brother's eye, right, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus is saying that the human heart has this uh, strange, uncanny ability to be keenly aware of every single tiny little flaw and shortcoming in every person around them, like spotting a speck or a gnat from a hundred yards away. The human heart can do that really well, but it has this glaring inability where, where it is painfully oblivious to its own flaws and its own shortcomings. In other words, the human heart is wired to think less of everyone else than it probably should and to think more highly of itself than it ought to think. 
So Paul is drawing on those words from Jesus and saying, don't do that. Obey Jesus when he said to don't uh, take the speck out of someone else's eye while ignoring the log in your own eye. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but instead uh, think of yourself with sober judgment. So, So fight against, push back against pride and arrogance and selfishness and self centeredness because those are all different forms and manifestations of thinking too highly of yourself thinking too highly of yourself is something of a it seems to be a uh, a core value of, of the world that we that we live in if you um, if you read or, or encounter modern pop psychology, you're going to hear a lot of encouragement to think more highly of, your, of yourself, right? Listen to your heart, be true to yourself, live your truth. No one else can tell you who you are. If they do, that's abusive, that's toxic leadership. You're the only one, right? Self-actualization. You're the only one that can determine who you are is all very big today. When I was a kid coming up in school, that wasn't around yet, but what was, was, the, was self-esteem, the self-esteem movement. You have to have a high, healthy self-esteem. We have to create environments that will help kids have self-esteem. We have to write curriculum uh, that, that is designed to boost kids' self-esteem, Right, the buzzwords always change every few years, but the, the, the core value remains the same, is that it's good and important for human beings to think as highly of themselves as they possibly can. When we don't think highly enough of ourselves, that leads to despair, self-loathing, self-harm, defeatism. And the higher our own estimation of ourselves is, the better off we are. We'll be, we'll be more confident, we'll be stronger, we'll be more willing and better equipped to strive and, and achieve, right? A, a high view of oneself is what pushes the human race forward. In fact, most of the time when anyone does anything wrong, commits a crime or hurts someone, chances are that was just uh, the result of low self-esteem, right? Uh, a, that person stole a car because they see themselves as a car thief and nothing more. That person beat his wife because he's been conditioned to think that he's the kind of person who's going to beat his wife, and, and people that are better than him don't do that, but he is a low life, and so that's just, the beha- that's just the behavior that's inevitably going to come out of him. It's unavoidable. Low self-esteem is bad. High self-esteem is good. Frankly, it doesn't even matter if your high self-esteem is even rooted in reality or not. Right? We would rather you think highly of yourself, even if it's not true, because that's better than thinking lowly of yourself. Who knows, if you think highly enough of yourself for, for long enough, you may actually will your, you may prove yourself right. You may actually you know, fake it until you make it, as it were. There's a book called uh, The Power of Positive Thinking uh, by a guy named Norman Vincent Peale, right? which kind of articulates the wisdom of the world self-esteem, think highly of yourself. That's the, that's the best thing that a human being can do. And Paul is saying, that's the wisdom of the world. He just said in verse 2, don't be conformed to thinking like that. Be transformed away 
from it. So don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But instead, think of yourself with sober judgment. So the word sober here means sane, right? Not crazy, not drunk, not right. Sane or sensible or realistic. Think of yourself with a sensible or a realistic judgment. The idea is your estimation of yourself <coughs> should be in line with reality. It shouldn't be higher. You shouldn't think higher of yourself than you really are, right? Um, the, the, the thinking is not the higher you think, the more positive an attitude you have. Eventually, that will help you to grow and to be a better person. The thinking is the more accurate of an assessment you have about yourself, the more you'll be able to know your own strengths and weaknesses so that you can emphasize your strengths and lean into them so that you can be aware of and work on your, your weaknesses and improve on, on them, right? Self, self-love, self-love is important, right? I, I, I'll grant that. I won't argue that. Self-love is important, but self-awareness is more important. To have an accurate understanding of who you are and not to have an overly inflated, rose-colored, overly high estimation of who you are. Because that, and, and <coughs> uh, a wrongly inflated estimation of who you are is going to rob you of the ability to grow and to change and to be sanctified and to become more Christ-like. The only way that you grow and be sanctified is if you start with an accurate estimation of who you are so that you know where you need to grow and you know what, where you need to, to, to change. In order to grow in Christ-likeness, we have to start by having a sensible or a realistic or a sober judgment and evaluation of ourselves. So don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but do think of yourself with sober, sensible, realistic judgment. And someone might say, well, that's not me. I don't, I don't think too highly of myself. I, actually, I think too low of myself. I am terribly insecure. I look around, I feel like everyone else is doing way better than I am. They're smarter than me. They're more successful than me. They're more attractive than me. Their career is better than mine. Their families are better than mine. Their, their life is more impressive than mine. I'm self-conscious. I feel like other people are judging me laughing at me. I feel like I'm a fraud and I'm about to be discovered as, uh, a, a, as the flawed person that I, that I am. So I don't think too highly of myself. I think too lowly of myself. But the thing, the thing is, whether you're thinking too highly of yourself or whether you're thinking too lowly of yourself, the reality is you still are thinking of yourself. A lot, which is, which is the opposite of, of real gospel humility. If someone were to say, my problem is not pride and self-assurance and, and ego, my problem is insecurity and being afraid of what other people think of me, Paul would say, well, that's still pride. Because the only way that you can be insecure about what other people think of you is if you're constantly thinking about and worrying about and dwelling on and obsessing over what other people think of you. In other words, if you're constantly thinking about yourself. So, so insecurity, we, we, might, we might be tempted to think that insecurity is the opposite of pride, 
Pride is thinking too highly of myself. Insecurity is thinking too lowly of myself. But the reality is insecurity is another form of pride. Pride is me thinking constantly about myself in a positive sense, how great I am. And insecurity is me thinking constantly about myself in a negative sense, how awful I am. But both are the same thing. It's me thinking about myself all the time, which is pride. They're just manifesting themselves in different ways. And so the antidote to pride is not to go from thinking highly of myself to thinking lowly of myself. The antidote to pride is going from thinking of myself all the time, constantly, to thinking about myself less. Which raises the question, how do we do that? Right? If, if, if uh, the problem is that I think about myself too much, and the, the antidote is I need to think about myself less, then the question is, how can I, how can I do that? How can I kind of achieve this, uh, f- the freedom of self-forgetfulness? How can I, how can I cultivate that in my heart? And, and the answer is uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says, right, The gospel of Christ says that you have sinned against God, you have incurred God's wrath, you can never earn the love and favor of God. No matter what you do, you have fallen short of the glory of God. You deserve the judgment of God. But because of Christ and because of what he has done in coming to you, taking your sin upon his shoulders, dying on the cross for you, because of what Jesus has done, God can and he does accept you and love you anyway. Not because of who you are, not because of all of the good things that you have done. In fact, in spite of who you are and in spite of all of the bad things that you have done. And that message, when understood and applied rightly, can serve as the antidote to the sins of of both, both sins, the sins of prideful arrogance and the sins of prideful insecurity. Right? The gospel undercuts insecurity because it reaffirms persistently, stubbornly, it reaffirms that God loves you. It doesn't matter if you uh, don't think that you're as smart or attractive or as successful as you want to be or as the people around you are. It doesn't matter if you don't think that you are worthy of being loved. None of that matters because God loves you. God has embraced you. God has accepted you. So even if you don't think that you are worthy of God's love and acceptance, God does. And he, his opinion trumps yours. Right? God loves you and thinks that you are worthy of being loved. And so even if you don't, even if you're in this spiral of despair and insecurity that I am not uh, worthy of love, God loves you. So by definition, you are worthy of love because someone does love you. God loves you. So the gospel undercuts insecurity and the, 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 the fear of man that we all kind of have in our hearts that I'm not good enough, I am not smart enough, I am not impressive enough, no one will ever love me if they truly knew me. The gospel undercuts that, and the gospel undercuts prideful arrogance, right? Because it says, yes, God loves you, 
But the reason why God loves you has nothing to do with you and how good you are, how impressive you are, how accomplished you are, how smart you are. The reason why God loves you is is only because of Jesus and who he is. It's because of Christ's righteousness, not your own. It's because of what Christ has done, not what you have done. So you have no reason in the world to think highly of yourself. That's silly and foolish. If it was appropriate to think highly of yourself, then God would have accepted you on the basis of who you are and what you have done, but he didn't. God accepted you on the basis of Christ and his righteousness. God is not impressed with you in and of yourself, so you should not be overly impressed with yourself. So the gospel undercuts prideful insecurity, and the gospel undercuts prideful arrogance, and it frees us to, again, not to think too highly of ourselves, not to think too lowly of ourselves, but just to think of ourselves less, and to to not have to be constantly dwelling on and obsessing on our Selves. The gospel frees us to think more about God and to think more about others than we think about ourselves. Which is where Paul goes in the rest of this passage. Right? So don't think too highly of yourself, more than you should. Do think of yourself with sober judgment. And then starting in the second half of verse 3, this last clause, Paul is going to start looking at and kind of pointing our attention to away from ourself and toward others, toward the body of Christ. So don't think too highly of yourselves with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We're not talking about an individual person now. We're talking about the entire church, the entire body of Christ. God has given every single person a measure of faith. Every, every member of the church, God has given a measure of faith. And Paul says, if you need to know how to go about repenting of the sin of thinking too highly of yourself and how to cultivate the godly discipline of thinking yourself with sober judgment, then look around you to the church realizing that every single person in the church, yourself included, has been given a measure of of faith. You are in and around and among and immersed in a body of believers who all trust in Jesus just like you do, and who all have been given a measure of faith just like you have been. And that reality will help you think rightly and realistically about yourself. (coughs) Here's the idea. If If I see myself, Ben Lopresti, as this isolated individual, and I have faith in God, God has given me individually a measure of faith, and here I am all by myself, then I might over time become tempted to think too highly of myself because I have no frame of reference. If I shoot basketballs in my driveway every day for weeks and months and years, and I never play on a team with anyone else, I might be tempted to think that I am pretty good, maybe the best basketball player that there is. It's not until you uh, are around others and have the, uh, a, a perspective of being a member of a, of a body that you start to, your own estimation of yourself can kind of be put into perspective. The, the tendency, apart from being immersed in the church, our tendency is going to be 
I'm up here, everyone else is down there. Right? That's the conclusion that we come to if we live our spiritual lives in an isolated, me-centered way. I'm up here, everyone else is down there. I inevitably have come to think more highly of myself than I ought. And Paul is saying, don't do that. That, That's foolish because God has not just given you a measure of faith as an individual. God has given each of you, all of you, ever in the body, God has given a measure of, of faith. There's, right, so, so no single person stands above the rest in the body of Christ. No matter how spiritual you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how uh, impressive you are, no matter how holy or godly you are, the reality is that you are yet another member of the body of Christ who resides among an entire See of other members in the body of Christ, all of whom stand equal before God, deserving of his wrath and judgment, enjoying his unmerited favor because of his glorious grace and mercy. No one person stands above the rest in the body of Christ. I'd say the same thing if Billy Graham were here, right? Pick, you know, pick you, put whatever name you want, right? C.S. Lewis, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, John Calvin, Martin Luther, St. Augustine, Ath- right? Paul himself, and the rest of the apostles, right? If they were here in this room right now, this verse would still be true, as true as it is right now. All of those people, as great as they were, as significant as their contributions to Christianity were, each of them is a sinner saved by grace, just like you, just like me, just like every other Christian on the planet, just like every other person who is going to spend eternity in heaven with God. No one person stands above the rest in the body of Christ because we're all saved by grace. And therefore, the body of Christ is not segmented and subdivided vertically, where there's new Christians and there's carnal Christians and there's immature Christians and then here's the more mature Christians and here's the ones who have attained this higher level of spiritual, right? and, and then here are the, the smartest and the best Christians, this vertical stratification, but rather the body of Christ is structured and subdivided horizontally where there are lots of different Christians, all of whom stand condemned by God, worthy of his judgment, but all of whom, all of whom have been saved by God's grace, And now, horizontally, we all have different personalities and temperaments and and giftings and roles and responsibilities that are all uh, important. So if you find yourself struggling with the sin of pride and thinking too highly of yourself, if you need help thinking of yourself with sober judgment like God has commanded us to do, the way to do it is to look around you at the church realizing and remembering that every single person in the church has been given a measure of faith from God, and that includes you, and that no Christian, including yourself, is any better or more deserving of salvation than any other Christian. It's a team sport. Right? Go play golf. If you win at golf, you have reason to go home and think highly of yourself. Pat yourself on the... Or tennis, right? Right? You're out there, it's you, it's you're, all, you're all by yourself, 
People get in trouble for tennis for someone not even like helping them, but just like shouting from the stands, hey, try hitting a forehand. Oh, that's, you're, you're not playing by yourself, right? So Christianity is not an individual sport like golf or tennis. It's, it's like football, where no matter how good of a football player you are, you're one of 11 players on your side of the field. So you, you own 9% of how that team, uh, how your side of the field plays on any given play. And then that's 9% of the 30 to 40% that your side of the field owns because then there's the other side. There's offense and defense, and then there's special teams, and then there's 53 players and 12 coaches and medical staff and trainers and assistants. And there's all of these people, and everyone has to do their job. And if one guy doesn't, no matter how insignificant their job appears to be, if one guy doesn't do their job, if one guy blows an assignment, leaves a, a, a gap, the team is probably going to, to lose. You are not the sorry in a team sport, you are not the sole determining factor. You're one person among many. You need everyone else. You can't win without them, and they need you. They can't win without you. And Christianity is a team sport where we are part of a team, we're part of the body of Christ. And no one Christian, no matter how impressive they are, stands above or outside of the body of Christ we are all a part of, we are all members of the body of Christ. Verse 4, for as in one body, we have many members, right? In your human body, you have lots of different body parts. The members do not all have the same function, so so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So you have a hundred different organs in your body, two hundred different bones, thirty-seven trillion cells in your body. There are more atoms in your body than there are grains of sand on the entire planet. Your body is made up of a vast number of different parts that all work together to accomplish the miracle that is you being alive. If those body parts did not work together in coordination with, in conjunction with one another, in concert with one another, you could not remain alive. All of your body parts have different tasks. Eyes see, they don't hear. Ears hear, they don't see, right? Some of your body parts are designed to keep foreign contaminants out. Some of your body parts are designed to keep vital organs in. Some eat food, some expel waste, some are offensive, they help you hunt and gather, some are defensive, they help you fight against predators, right? You have lots of different body parts that all have their own unique special task, their own contribution that they make to the whole, and they all depend on each other to do their individual jobs so that the body collectively can accomplish its overall purpose, which is living. And Paul says that's how the church works. The church collectively, the universal church, (coughs) that's made up of all believers of all time, and each particular local church that's made up of specific believers in a specific location who have covenanted to walk with Christ together, right? The church, universal and the church, church local, are made up of a bunch of different parts, a bunch of different members, and those members depend on each other. And each one of those members is essential to the overall health of the church. 
The church needs its members in order for it to accomplish its overall purpose, just like the body needs the body parts in order for it to accomplish its overall purpose. The purpose of the body is to live. The purpose of the church is to receive and enjoy the grace of God. It's to display the glory and grace of God to the world. It's to proclaim the gospel and make disciples so that the glorious grace of God can be known and enjoyed by the entire world. Your body needs all of its body parts to accomplish its purpose of living. The church needs all of its members to accomplish its purpose of fulfilling God's great commission that was given to the church. And no one Christian, no matter how impressive they appear to be, is more essential to the church and to its purpose. So what Paul, Paul has a similar point, but he expounds on it in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, The body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, I'm not a hand, therefore I don't belong to the body, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the ear should say, I'm not an eye, therefore I don't belong to the body, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. If all were one single member, where would the body be? The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are actually indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. So God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division, but that members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then here's where he returns to the language from Romans He says, now you are the body of Christ and individually you are members of it. So everyone in the church is essential to the thriving and the functioning of the church, right? The the person who preaches, the person who leads music, the people who have roles that are very public are no more important than the people who serve behind the scenes. They're no no more important than the person who practices the ministry of attendance, who just attends and listens and sings and encourages other church members after church. On the grander scale, right? The Christian celebrity, the music artist on the radio, the person whose books are are bestsellers, the person who goes to the White House and advises the president and prays at his inauguration, right? All of those people make significant contributions to the church, but none of them are any more essential to the church, any more necessary for its health and vitality than any one of you. Paul's saying we are all members of the church, and we are all critically, essentially important to the church. Verse 6, he says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy then in proportion to our faith, serving in our serving, if teaching in our teaching, if exhortation then in our exhortation, if the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with 
cheerfulness. So in light of the fact that we are all members of the church and that no one person stands above the rest in the body of Christ, in light of the fact that we are all necessary and essential to the church's ability to fulfill its purpose, in light of all that, here's what we need to do. We need to play our part. We need to love and serve in the body of Christ in accordance with the particular gifts and capacities that God has given us. So if God has, has given us the gift of, of um, prophecy, of, of speaking uh, words to others that encourage them and that help them to persevere in their faith, <coughs> or if God has given you the particular ability to give words of guidance or counsel to believers who are struggling or they have a difficult decision to make and you can help them with it, Paul says, do that. Don't ignore it. Don't uh, keep your gift tucked in under a bushel and neglect, like withhold it from the church that needs it. If your gift is serving, then do that. If you're good at anticipating needs and, and meeting them, great. Do that. Look around, anticipate needs, and meet them because those people need you to do that for them. If your gift is teaching, right? If you find yourself, uh, if, you, if you understand yourself to be particularly proficient at opening God's word, explaining it, explaining what it means, explaining what it, how it applies to our lives, then do that. Be diligent in teaching, which can take any number of forms, right? Grab a friend. <coughs> Invite them to sit down. Invite them to read the Bible together. Discuss it. Talk about it. Right? Talk about how it applies to your, your lives. Disciple another believer. Host a small group. Lead a discussion. Teach a Sunday school class. Offer to share something from God's Word at a, a, a member meeting. Offer to preach uh, on, on Sunday morning. Right? If, you're, if you... If God has given you the gift of teaching, then lean into it and teach others in the body of Christ. If God has given you the gift of exhortation, right, encouraging and, and instructing and kind of guiding other people, right, uh, prophecy and teaching and exhortation are all very similar. You can kind of parse it out and kind of, uh, you know, identify some specific individual characteristics of each, but they're all similar. So if your gift is exhortation, then, and then exhort others. Tell them they're doing a good job and and uh, help them to walk uh, with God and persevere in the faith. If, you're, if your gift is generosity, if you enjoy uh, giving, if you enjoy meeting needs, then do it. Give generously, give cheerfully, give sacrificially, give what you can as an act of worship so that the body of Christ can be built up by it. If you have the gift of leadership, organizing and, and kind of helping deploy people to, to tasks so that they can accomplish God's purposes through coming together. Great, do that. If your gift is doing acts of mercy, of being aware of and drawn to people that are uh, hurting and suffering, sick or broken, other kinds of distress, then by all means, do that. Do it willingly. Do it with, with gladness. The point is, all of us has some particular set of gifts that God has graciously given to us. If you're a Christian, you have some set of giftings that, the God, that God has given you through his Holy Spirit, and God has called you to use them and leverage them for the good of the church, for the building up of the body of Christ. So don't neglect it, don't ignore it, and don't withhold it. 
Instead, use the gifts that God has given you to love and serve others in the body of Christ. Now, here's what these verses are not saying. Right? They're, they're not saying, uh, just pick the one thing that you like the most and only do that one thing ever. Right? Neglect everything else, even if there's a pronounced, discernible need for it in the church. Right? It doesn't mean someone should say, well, I have the gift of teaching, so I'm going to teach and only do that. I don't have to give, I don't have to tithe, I don't have to serve, I don't have to help in the nursery. I'm only ever going to, to teach. Or I have the gift of serving, so I'm only ever going to serve in these particular ways that I like, that I enjoy. I'm never going to pray, I'm never going to share the gospel with others because I'm not gifted uh, in, in prayer or evangelism. I don't feel called to prayer or evangelism, so I'm never going to do those things. I have my one gift, and that's all I'm going to do. That would be uh, a misapplication of these verses here. So it's not saying that we, that any of us have the prerogative of ignoring clear, discernible needs in the body of Christ and commands from God. But what it does mean is every single one of us has been given gifts by God, so figure out what they are, Right? Look inward at what you like to do. Look outward at what other people are affirming you and saying that you're good at doing. Everyone has a gift of some sort. Figure out what it is and and lean in there. Don't neglect all of the other things that you don't feel particularly gifted in. But give special attention to, special concentration to, the areas where you feel that God has given you particular gifts that you can use and steward. So be faithful everywhere, be obedient everywhere, meet needs that the church has, obey commands from God regardless of whether you're gifted there or not, and concentrate on where you are gifted and build up the body of Christ by stewarding your gifts. That's how God has called us to live and serve in the body of Christ. So don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't be proud or arrogant or have an inflated view of yourself, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Be humble. Think of yourself less and think of God and other people more by recognizing that you are a member of the body of Christ all of whom have been given a measure of faith, all of whom have been given spiritual gifts, all of whom are called to uh, steward those gifts for the body of Christ, for the building up of the body of Christ, and for the, for the glory of God. So repent of the sin of pride, cultivate humility, love and serve fellow Christians for the glory of God, for their good, and for your joy pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the gift of grace that you have given to us through Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would help us to be humble and to cultivate humility in our hearts, and to think of ourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that you have given us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to lean into the body of Christ as members of it, 
and to love and serve others in the body of Christ so that you could be glorified and magnified and so that the church can be edified and built up and so that we could um, be satisfied and, and find joy and fulfillment uh, in, in you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.